2: The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks banking services provided by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC. Only funds in envelopes are an APY. APY can change at any time.
1: I try really hard not to get caught up in popular tropes, but sometimes conventional narratives are right or mostly right, and dismissing them out of hand is just being contrarian for the sake of being contrarian, and that's stupid. One of the things you hear often these days is that America is becoming a more tribal and polarized country. And not just that, we're also becoming meaner and less fulfilled as individuals. The point about polarization seems obvious enough. I'm not sure anyone quibbles with that. But what does it mean to say that we're becoming meaner? And if it's true that we are, why is that happening? I'm Sean Elling, and this is The Gray Area. Today's guest is David Brooks. He's a longtime columnist for The New York Times and the author of many, many books, including the forthcoming How to Know a Person. He also writes for The Atlantic. And it's at The Atlantic, where he published a recent essay titled, How America Got Mean. The timing of this episode is a bit funny. We taped just before Brooks went viral for a picture he posted of a burger, fries, and a hefty glass of bourbon he had at an airport for dinner. It was supposed to be a joke about inflation or something like that, and well, let's just say it didn't land.
2: The problem with the tweet, which I wrote so stupidly, was that it made it seem like I was oblivious to something that is blindingly obvious, that an upper-middle-class journalist having a verb at an airport is a lot different than a family living paycheck to paycheck. Brooks was absolutely
1: hammered online for The Post. To be honest, like most stuff on social media, I thought the whole thing was thoroughly dumb and unproductive. But it was interesting to see this play out on the heels of David's essay about meanness. While he definitely walked right into this one, the reaction of people to his post and his reaction to that reaction sort of embodies a lot of what we talked about in this
2: conversation.
1: David Brooks, welcome to The Gray Area.
2: Uh, Great to be in The Gray Area. First time here.
1: (laughs) First time, long time. I am sort of fascinated by the turn you've taken in recent years, although it may not be that much of a turn after all. But whatever it is you're writing about these days, it, it always seems to come back to core humanist questions about what it means to be good, what it means to flourish, what we owe other people. And this is all very much in my philosophical wheelhouse, so I'm happy to see it. But was there a point for you, where you decided that this is the direction you wanted to go intellectually and maybe even spiritually?
2: Yeah, not consciously. Uh, people come up to me and said, I've really been following your journey. They always talk about my journey. <laughs> uh, and I guess, yeah. you know, I, I say that I'm not an exceptional person, but I am a grower, that I, I do try to grow through life. And I think over many decades, I've been on a slow and fitful journey toward becoming a human being. <laughs> and so if you had known me at 25, You would have thought, he's a pleasant enough guy, but he's not exactly emotionally open. (laughs) And so I had the journalist and the policy wonks' natural emotional avoidance. I always say Washington is the most emotionally avoidant place on the face of the earth. It's where those of us who don't want to talk about ourselves or our feelings go to talk about policy. And so I was doing that. And then, you know, life has a tendency to tender you up a little. You know, being a father makes you a little more emotionally vulnerable. You go through moments of suffering. You go through moments of public humiliation and you get a little deeper into yourself. And so I've been on an exploration into those depths. And because I'm me, I do it by writing books. So like, I wrote a book called The Social Animal about human emotion. I wrote a book called Road a Character about morality. And I have a book coming out in October called How to Know a Person, which is how do you make other people feel seen and, and deeply heard? And how do you understand other people? So it's been a, a journey for sure. But The only final thing I'll say is my overall view is we're over-politicized and under-moralized. We spend too much time analyzing political data and events and not enough time on, like, how to become a better person or, like, my next book, like, how do you have a good conversation? How do you be a good listener? How do you ask for forgiveness? These are, like, basic, elemental, humane skills, and somehow they don't get taught.
1: Well, the essay we're going to talk about today fits pretty neatly into this wheelhouse, because it is about how mean and sad Americans have become. Now, I have a ton of thoughts about this, but before we get to that, can you lay out what you wanted to say in this piece? What's the basic argument here?
2: Yeah, well, it starts uh, with two questions. So first is, why are we so sad? And everybody knows the statistics on depression and mental health problems and suicide, But there's a whole range of statistics saying we're just in the middle of some relational crisis. So the 54% of Americans say no one knows what me well. The number of people who say they have no close friends has quadrupled. Now a third of Americans are not in a romantic relationship. We spend a lot less time with our friends than we used to. If you ask high school seniors, are you persistently hopeless and despondent? 45% now say yes. So that's sadness. And then the sadness makes us mean. And so my second question is, why are we so mean? I was in a restaurant a couple months ago now, and the owner told me that he has to kick somebody out of the restaurant once a week for you know, abusive behavior. And that never used to happen. I have a friend who's a nurse at a hospital, and she says their main task is finding nurses, that people want to leave the profession because the patients have become so abusive. Used to be two-thirds of Americans gave to charity. Now it's less than half. So there's sadness and meanness everywhere. And So a lot of people have had different stories to tell about how this came to be. And one of them is the social media story. It's driving us all crazy. Another is the sociology story. We're not involved in civic groups. We're bowling alone. Another is the inequality story. We're so economically distant from each other. We're not good at knowing each other. But the story I tell is kind of a moral story. It's the most direct story. We don't treat each other well because we haven't taught young people for several generations, how to be considerate to each other in the small circumstances of life, how to sit with somebody who's suffering from depression, how to disagree well. And so I focus on moral formation and that we haven't morally formed each other in ways to make us kind to each other and in ways that make us see each other. And just I'll close with, the: when I say moral formation, it sounds super pompous. And pretentious, but I only—I mean it in three simple ways. Moral formation is helping us find a way to restrain our natural selfishness. The second thing is moral formation is helping us find a goal in life, an ideal to pursue that gives us meaning and purpose. And then the third part of moral formation is giving us the skills, social skills, to like know how to end a conversation with grace, how, know how to have a hard conversation across difference. And so teaching those basic elemental social skills that help us be decent to one another.
1: And what do you think of as the primary mechanisms through which or by which we learn how to do those things? Are we talking about education here, primarily?
2: Uh, not only, you know, our founders had a pretty low view of human nature. They, they thought we're wonderfully made, but we're also pretty selfish and we're prone to lies, we're prone to cruelty. And so they concluded, you know, if we're going to make a democracy out of these people, we better do some education. We better do some formation. And through most of the American history, we had a whole range of morally formative institutions. And they were, some of them were religious, some of them were non-religious, some of them were conservative, some of them were progressive. But they were things like the Sunday school movement or the settlement house movement. Or in schools, the purpose of schooling for most of American history was to improve character. And so there was moral education in the schools. There were even these corny things we would not want to go back to, like the courtesy club in school, the thrift club. Or there was uh, at universities like I'm one of my heroes is a woman named Frances Perkins who was secretary of labor under FDR, and she went to Mount Holyoke, and Mount Holyoke College had the phrase "Go where no one wants to go, do what no one wants to do," and they morally charged up these young women, so they went charging out into life, broad or at home, sort of addressing poverty, serving as missionaries of one sort or another. And so across the range of American history, you had morally formative institutions of all shapes and sizes until about the end of World War II, and then they just went away. Why did they just go away? Well, one of the theories is that we got a lot more competitive in the meritocracy. So schools, which used to take character formation as their main goal, suddenly took getting you into Harvard as their main goal. They focused much more on careers. But their second was a cultural shift. The founders, as I mentioned, had this low view of human nature, were basically kind of selfish. After World War II, the philosophy took over public culture, sometimes called positive psychology or the self-esteem movement, Carl Rogers, and they were a group of people who said, people are not basically selfish, people are basically good. It's the authorities, it's the institutions who are bad. And so your job to become a better person is not to morally educate yourself, your job is to self-actualize. To get more in touch with you and to become more self-involved, really. And if you think you're pretty perfect, you don't need a moral education. You look, like, you came out of the womb just as good as you can be. And so there's no purpose in teaching it anymore. Just we let you do you. Before we get into the causes, potential causes, I just
1: I don't want to gloss over some of these stats that you point out because they really are. Startling and alarming and depressing, quite frankly. I mean, the fact that since 1990, there's been a fourfold increase in people who say they don't have close friends. And this one, really, I almost don't believe it, but I'll, I'll accept it, certainly for the sake of this conversation. But the fact that half of all Americans say that no one knows them well. I don't know how that's even possible. How do we get to a place like that where half the country says no one knows them well?
2: Yeah. And that involves like members of your immediate family. And if people who have had divorces have had the lonely feeling that the person who should know you best has no clue who you are. For my next book, I interviewed a guy named Dan McAdams, who's a psychologist at Northwestern. And he studies how people tell their life stories. And what he does is he asks people to come into his lab and then he gives them a research feed for their time. And then he asks them questions about their life stories. Uh, what are your high points? What are your low points? What are your turning points? And at the end, it takes about four hours, and he says half the people cry when talking about some part of their lives. But then at the end, they're done, and he gives them the check for their time. And they give a lot of them want to give the check back. They say, "I don't want money for this. This has been the best afternoon of my life. No one has ever asked me about my life story before, and I have certainly found that that people, a lot of people, just have never been asked." And a lot of people, frankly, I'll go to a party and I'll leave and I'll think, you know, that whole time nobody asked me a question. I've come to believe that only about 30% of humans are questioners. The other people are nice. They tell funny stories. They're just not curious about other people. And so I think we've drifted into a world where we're always broadcasting and social media is about how I'm broadcasting. But it's not about listening. It's not about taking the time to get to know another human story and making them feel seen, heard, and understood.
1: I mean, I would say also the fact that a little less than half of high schoolers, at least in 2021, reported having persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness. I'm sure the pandemic had a lot to do with that, but I also suspect the trend lines were already moving in that direction long before the pandemic, and maybe the pandemic just supercharged it.
2: Yeah, I think in 2009, it was 26% who said they're persistent feelings of sadness and hopelessness, and that was going straight up. The pandemic did make it worse, but it's been going up since 2009. And the, the statistics on teenage suicide, for example, that has really turbocharged since 2013. Suicide rates overall have really been rising since 2000. So this is a multi-decade thing, and it's just a great paradox of modern life that we are now 100 years into the age of therapy and psychology and Freud and all that, and yet we have more mental health problems than ever before. And so it's just, to me, this is the underlying problem that goes underneath a lot of our other political problems that, you know, people who are lonely, sad, hurting, and and angry are not going to be great citizens. (laughs) Sadness
1: seems easy enough to measure. Depression, loneliness, suicide. But measuring meanness seems a little more complicated. How do you measure it? What are the manifestations of meanness in your mind?
2: I tried to do that as best I could. You look at the murder rates, you look at hate crimes, uh, you look at gun sales. I would say distrust is maybe the closest proxy. To me, the most important statistic we have about the health of our society morally is distrust statistics. So Americans lost a sense of trust in their institutions in the 60s and 70s, Vietnam, Watergate, inflation, all that kind of thing, they've lost trust in each other, what they call interpersonal distrust, mostly in the last 40 years. And so why are we distrustful? Well, Robert Putnam at Harvard, to me, gives the simplest, clearest answers. We're distrustful because the people around us have been untrustworthy. It's not about our perception, it's about reality. And I used to tell this to my students uh, where I used to teach about their distrust. And one young woman said to me, have you seen our social lives? (laughs) Like if you're getting ghosted all the time or you're getting mistreated, then you're going to be pretty distrustful. And that psychology of distrust is just a very punishing psychology because you feel you armor yourself up because you perceive threat everywhere. You lash out because you think if I'm not lashing out, then they're going to get me. One of the things loneliness does is it distorts the way you see reality. You come to fear the thing you desire most, which is relationship. And so it really has a warping, warping your perceptions. So it's hard to quantify these things. But I guess I'd ask you, if you think we're in a non-mean society, have you looked at our politics recently? (laughs) Pretty mean. Yeah,
1: we may have a few disagreements here, but uh, (laughs) that is not among them. Um, You know, I say that, and then at the same time, I didn't, peruse the Twitter hellscape to see the responses to your piece. But I'm sure more than a few raise what I think is, at least on the surface, a fair question. And that question is, are are people really meaner than they were 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or 70 years ago? Do we really know that? Because I know some of the things you point to in the piece, like how people were more formal and, and, and people dressed proper and they performed social conventions more reliably those sorts of things are for me less about kindness and more about obedience to customs. but I'm not so sure it tells us all that much more than that. A group of white people standing around a black man hanging from a tree in 1946 right may have had more sport coats and ties on, but they were still morally depraved and mean you know and I realize that's that's a loaded example um, and, and I don't mean it that way I'm just trying to raise a point about how tempting it is for all of us to romanticize. The past.
2: Yeah. So I guess I'd say two things. Well, I'd say a few things. Well, first, I emphasize in the piece, I would take pleasure in emphasizing here, I don't want to go back to the past. Yeah. I, yeah. You know, the past allowed and celebrated all sorts of hierarchies we find offensive, like whites are more important than blacks, men are over women, straights over gays, Christians over Jews. Like, I wouldn't never want to go to back there to that. Uh, and the second thing, I would never want to go back to the character-forming models they had 100 years ago. You know, Teddy Roosevelt, you know, men got to be men and women have to hide in the, so they can preserve their purity. I would never want to go back to those things. But on the other hand, it's a mistake to think we have nothing to learn from the past. I think I am, along with a zillion other people, pointing to a genuine problem in our society that we we have all these books like one of the best-selling books of our era, it's this book by Bessel van der Kolk, The Body Keeps the Score, about trauma. Why is a book about trauma such a gigantic, multi-million dollar seller? Because a lot of people feel traumatized and they're trying to figure out what to do about it. And so that to me are objective realities that are part of our world. What
1: role does capitalism play in all of this? That's coming up after a quick break. Support for The Gray Area comes from Shopify,
0: State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
1: If I struggled with anything when I was reading your piece, it was less about what you do say and more about what you didn't talk about. There are two words in particular that don't appear anywhere in the piece, and they are capitalism and neoliberalism. Before I say any more, and I have a ton to say, maybe too much, I'll just ask, was that a deliberate decision by you? Did you feel like capitalism wasn't all that relevant to the story you wanted to tell here?
2: Well, it was a 10,000 word piece that got chopped down to forty five hundred words, so that, that's part of it. <laughs> um, and I, even in 10,000, I can't cover everything. So I guess my view on capitalism and neoliberalism is that I'm pretty pro-capitalist. I'm, I call myself a liberal, but I would not want capitalism and the rules of the market to be determining my human relationships with another person. That capitalism has a tendency to turn us in, to make all connections transactions. Capitalism has a tendency to make our view of each other instrumental. How can I use you for my own selfish gain? And so I think any decent society, I'm glad we're capitalist, but you have to balance capitalism with an ethos that really cuts against capitalism. And for a lot of places, religion serves as that ethos. Yeah. And for a lot of people, I guess you could say secular humanism serves as that ethos, uh, which is really about valuing the person seeing them. In their full selves. But we've allowed, maybe over the past few decades, all those other logics to fade away. Religion is a less important part of American life than it used to be. I would say the humanities and humanism is a less important part. People aren't majoring in English and history and literature the way they did. And so everything has become way more instrumental. And the, the logic of the market has come to dominate. And so I wrote a, a book a couple of years ago called The Road to Character, where I drew on this rabbi, Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik, who said there are two sides to our nature, which he called the majestic side, which is the side of us that wants to build and create and start a company, and then there's the humble side, the side of us that wants to relate to each other to sink and have a deep and purposeful life. And I symbolize those two things by saying there are two sets of virtues. The resume virtues, the thing that make you good at your job, and the eulogy virtues, the thing they say about you after you're dead, whether you're honest, courageous, capable of great love. And in my view, our culture has vastly overemphasized the resume and vastly underestimated the eulogy virtues.
1: And to me, that's not an accident. To me, it's a very predictable consequence, you know. So to my mind, it's very hard to talk about alienation and meanness and despair in this country without telling this more materialist story about how capitalism and the neoliberal revolution, which incidentally started about 40, 50 years ago... How that's transformed our society. You know, I mean, so much has been privatized. So much of public life has been swallowed up, as you were saying, by market logic. The vehicles of social solidarity and democratic engagement, like unions or or other civic associations, those things have been systematically undermined and, and communities are as atomized as they've ever been. These transformations to me have much more to do with our happiness and well-being than anything else. Do you think I'm overemphasizing the causal role there?
2: Yeah, I guess I'd say a couple of things. A, I agree, but you, know, you look around the world, we have a lot of free market countries that do not suffer the way we suffer from these things. I think that's one thing. I guess the story I would tell is, I would phrase it as individualism. We've always been a pretty capitalistic country, but if you go back to a certain period, there was a a greater sense of collectivity. And so I'm thinking now of Robert Putnam's work that he has a book called The Upswing. And it's about how a lot of social indicators went in the right direction from about eighteen ninety when they were all social indicators were pretty bad in the eighteen nineties, kinda of like ours today. And then they improved across a whole range of things. And these are things like reduced income inequality, less political polarization, more civic engagement, more family formation, more charitable donations. All those things went up together in the first half of the twentieth century, and they've been going down really since about 19, early 1960s. And so the question is, why have all these different social indicators, which seem unrelated, been following the same bell curve, up and then down? And Putnam's argument is culture of individualism. And so he says, he calls his curve, the me, we, me. So we had a very individualistic culture in the 1890s, me. We had a more collectivist and cooperative culture because of the world wars, because of the depression, we. And since then, we've had an individualistic culture, and that has taken two forms. One, the form you mentioned, which is capitalist Darwinism. But the second is lifestyle individualism. I get to control my own life. I get to do whatever I want. It's not yours to judge. And I'm glad we went through this more individualistic phase, but we've overshot the mark. And we're too cut off one from another. And I think it's that isolation which manifests both in economic form but also in social form that I think reduces the connections between people. Yeah, again, I
1: I don't think living in a free market society is incompatible with, with happiness. It's a particular road we've gone down. You know, when you have people like Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan basically declaring society a a pernicious illusion and want to build a world that reduces us to isolated individuals competing for money and status. I mean, you know, what could go wrong, right? You know, I mean, I I say all the time, capitalism is a morality, too. You know, it's the morality of consumerism, where you're defined by what you own, uh, by the status it affords you. And yeah, I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't think that turns us into wise, compassionate people. I think it turns us into the worst versions of ourselves.
2: Yeah, I, I would, um, I guess we do disagree on that. I mean, I, I guess, you know, to me, capitalism, I have two heroes. One is this conservative philosopher, Edmund Burke. The other is uh, Alexander Hamilton, who's a Puerto Rican hip-hop star from the Heights. (laughs) Um, Alexander Hamilton believed in capitalism because he thought people were at their best when they were energetic, when they were striving, when they were really chasing after somebody with all their fervor. And so, you know, he then led to the Whig movement in the early 19th century, which led to Abraham Lincoln. And so I appreciate capitalism for the way it arouses energies and creates a lot dynamic society. But as I said, you always have to counterbalance it with another morality. And if it's not going to be religion, it's got to be something. And so I think the realistic one for us is what I call humanism, which is putting human relationship and curiosity about other humans at the center of your life. I
1: guess it comes down to what the constraints are and what's possible and how to govern that, how to control that. I mean, you know, there's another stat you bring up in the piece about how, I think in 1967, something like 80, 85% of students in college said that they were strongly motivated to develop a meaningful philosophy of life. And then, you know, like 80 something percent of students say wealth and money is their primary aim. Mm -hmm. My response to that when I hear it is, well, yeah, of course. I mean, You drop people into a society that demands we optimize our life for success in the market. And then it's hard to turn around and reproach them when they become reflections of the moral nihilism of the market. You know what I mean?
2: Yeah, I guess that we we can all point to people who are plenty embedded in capitalism but have rebelled against it and who uh, we find amazingly admirable people. And I think even in most companies, So I saw a statistic recently, this was a study by McKinsey. uh, They asked people during the Great Resignation uh, why they left their firm. First they asked the CEOs, why did people quit your firm? And the number one answer they gave was people who left to get more money. And then they asked the people who quit why they left. And the number one answer was, my manager didn't recognize me. So they left because they didn't feel seen. And so within a capitalist firm, it's super useful if you can really understand the people around you and treat them with respect and some compassion and care. So I don't want to paint capitalism as this completely ruthless dog-eat-dog world, because I think it does, in good companies, those good companies set a certain standard for how to behave.
1: Yeah, I don't think neoliberalism isn't the only way to do capitalism. It's just the way we've done it. And I think it's especially pernicious when it comes to When it comes to these sorts of things, it's not the only way things have to be. But it is the way they are. And I think there's been a lot of really terrible consequences to that.
2: Yeah. The the way I put it, I, I ran across this story several decades ago now. It was about an Israeli daycare center. And the daycare center had a problem, which was that the parents were coming in late to pick up their kids. And so they decided, well, our teachers need to go home on time. So we're going to impose a fine on parents who come in late. And so what happened? The number of parents who came in late to pick up their kids doubled. And so why did it double? It's because before, parents saw the daycare center through the moral lens, that I need to show up on time so it's considered to the teachers so they can go home. But once the fines were imposed, they saw it through an economic lens, which is, I'll pay a fine, I'll come in two hours late, I'm happy to pay the fine. And so our job as human beings is to not only see things through an economic lens, but also to see things through a moral lens.
1: Yeah. I do want to reiterate that I don't disagree with most of what you're saying, certainly about the benefits of a humanistic education, about the benefits of institutions that cultivate virtue. I love Aristotle. I think he was right about a lot. I think we should teach ethics. <laughs> what I keep coming back to is that even that vision of moral education, important as it is, requires a community in which to practice it. And we have engineered a society without much community. So when you say that the most important story about why Americans have become sad and alienated and rude is also the simplest. And now I'm quoting you: We inhabit a society in which people are no longer trained in how to treat each other with kindness and consideration. And I don't know, David, I I think that story may be simple, but I do think it's incomplete in, in an important way. Like, I'm not sure, and maybe I'm wrong about this. I'm not sure more churches and boys and girls clubs and more humanist curriculums is even close to a sustainable counterweight to all the economic and social forces we're talking about here. But I think you have more faith in that than I do.
2: I guess I do. Yeah. I I don't think capitalism is so corrosive that you can't overcome its weaknesses with that kind of community action. But I guess the question I ask is, as I mentioned, I already mentioned Robert Putnam, the Bowling Alone author. And I do think it's amazingly true that we no longer are in as many groups. And if morality happens anywhere, it happens in groups, not in a classroom. We learn morality the way we learn crafts, through practicing them in morally coherent communities. So if you're Jewish, when somebody dies, you sit shiva with them. You go to the home of the family and you sit with them. And it's this beautiful tradition of showing compassion for the family, but in a way that sort of keeps them busy. They've got to host all these people. And you can either, you don't want to raise the dead the name of the dead, but if they want to talk about it, they're perfectly free to do so. And so that little practice of sitting Shiva is, to me, a moral education in itself. And if we're not involved in our religions, then we're not going to learn that tradition. It's just like we didn't go to that school and so to me it's but why have we created a society where we don't join groups joining groups is one of the most fun things you can do it it definitely leads to happiness
1: that's what i wanted to ask you what do you think is the main reason why we bowl alone what what is the main reason or reasons why we have splintered in this way and are no longer participants in groups like that
2: or groups at all you know i think it's Moral individualism, the moral freedom—the idea that I get to do what I want on my own—and so there's a downside to joining groups. One is other people are going to join us. B, we have to pay some pressure to conform. C, it, it takes time, and we'd rather hang around on our phones. Uh, and there, other people are a problem. You know, <laughs> we may find them annoying, <laughs> so there are all these inconveniences. And yet, partially because we were poor, we more or less had to form groups. Because if you're a farmer, you need your neighbors to survive. But I do think, as Robert Putnam thinks, that it was a cultural turn. We fell for the idea that if everybody does their own thing, it'll all work out for everybody. And I don't think that's true. You know, there's a book I highly recommend by Alan Ehrenholt called The Lost City. And it's about Chicago in the 50s. And he says they were really groupish. They were really communal. You know, people left their doors open. Kids ran in between the bungalows from one home to another. They all went to church together. And these are Black neighborhoods, Irish neighborhoods, Italian neighborhoods, Polish neighborhoods. But he said their lives were restricted. They were restricted to their neighborhood. The choices they can make were restricted. And Holt said, I would go back to that. He's very blunt about it. I would accept restrictions on my choice if I could go back to that kind of community. I personally would not go back to it. I don't want to be that conformist. I don't want to have my life that honed in. So I think we have to find new ways of building community, new ways of teaching empathy and compassion to one another. Do you think the privatization of so much of public life is a big part of the, the story here? Yeah. Um, Tell me what you mean by that. Like, what what parts of privatization?
1: Well, for instance, you wrote a a really interesting piece a while back about how the the nuclear family was a mistake. (laughs) And I, I, again, I don't want to, I guess I am beating a dead horse here, but I think of all this as a, a very predictable outcome of a society engineered for individualism without robust social and public infrastructure where society is reduced to the nuclear family as a discrete and economic Unit where we're sort of funneled into suburbs (laughs) where there's not a lot of public infrastructure, there's not a lot of social services, we're just sort of discrete little economic units, sort of fending for ourselves, like you say. And that is so corrosive on the very idea of community and solidarity, where it feels like it was almost inevitable that it would produce a culture or an ideology that reflected those structures and those systems.
2: So, a doctor, if they only, you know, I think somewhere I read that. The doctor gives a patient like 16 seconds to talk before they start giving them a diagnosis, because the frankly the capitalist pressure of medicine are such that in a fee for service system they have to churn through a lot of patients. So in that sense, I do agree that the economic pressures really destroy the human connection. On the other hand, one can envision or look around the world at other places where they really have much more social supports.
1: Coming up after the break, David and I discuss how social media is amplifying the sense of disconnection a lot of us feel today. we now live in this digital era which gives us the capacity to know everything terrible happening in the world while also presenting us with flattened caricature distortions of other people and then we also at the same time have the ability to express our anger about all these things but in a totally impotent way because it's just hobbyism we're just we're clicking and posting and and these sorts of things and the fact that so much of our lives now is lived virtually so much of our experience with the world is mediated by these really corrosive tools that do not bring out the best in us. It's just a tremendously important part of the story here. We're not actually in the world with other people in three dimensions <laughs> as much as we used to be. And that's not good.
2: Yeah. So I I mentioned in the piece there are all these other explanations, these stories, and I agree with all of them basically. And doesn't mean I want to play down the ills of social media or the ills of capitalism, but I'm trying to introduce the one story that I felt had not been told on social media there's judgment everywhere and understanding nowhere and it, it's just uh it's clearly all you have to look at the statistics in 2013 when the smartphone goes mass teenagers mental health collapses so that's got to play a big role
1: you said something in the piece that feels relevant here and i think it's sort of related to what i i think we might miss when we overlook some of the brokenness i'm talking about Do you write that after decades without much in the way of moral formation america became a place where more than 74 million people looked at Donald Trump's morality and saw presidential timber. (laughs) That's a good line. I don't think most of the people who voted for Trump looked at his morality and, and thought it was presidential timber. I think they looked at Trump and saw an entertaining avatar. I think they saw someone who was hated by the people they hate I think a vote for Trump for millions of people was probably a middle finger to a system that feels very disconnected from their lived experience. And it reflected the emptiness and the cynicism of our society. And I think racism is part of the story. I'm sure at any given time, a third of the country may actually want authoritarianism or something like that. You know, there are all kinds of factors. The world is complicated. But I really think the country had to be broken and stripped down in the ways that it has in order for someone like Trump to emerge. And the story of that breakdown is about a lot more than the collapse of moral education.
2: Right. I mean, all all complex social phenomena are about a, a lot of different stories wrapped into one. Yeah. But it is nonetheless, to me, shocking that a lot of people looked at his morality the access Hollywood and all the rest, and were not immediately like okay, that guy's out. Whether I agree with him, whether he hates the right people, that guy is out because character is destiny. And if he's going to behave that way to other human beings, he'll behave that way to the country. And so, A, that strikes me as just interesting that a lot of people were willing to ride along with that. B, there was a poll out within the last couple months from among Republicans, who's the most honest, who do you trust to be the most honest? Is it your local leaders, your church leaders, or Donald Trump? By far, Donald Trump is the most honest figure out here. So I know a lot of people who are Trump supporters are like, yeah, he's a bastard, but he's our bastard. We needed a bastard to take down the people who are trying to destroy us. But I know a lot of people who just think he's a wonderful guy. And so that to me suggests some level of moral corrosiveness in society that they are able to not have all the red flags in the world go off when that guy shows up on the scene.
1: Yeah, it's not super encouraging.
2: <laughs> I think
1: one thing we almost certainly agree on, and I don't think you ever put it quite this way in the piece, but the fact that, politics has become our religion in lots of ways, that it's the place where people living mostly virtual lives turn for meaning and self-expression. That's been a total disaster on every level.
2: Right, and I I do have some of that in the piece. Part of the piece I'm proudest of probably is how, in a healthy society, we practice the politics of redistribution. It's how high should taxes be? Where should we allocate resources? And that's a normal society. But we don't have a politics of redistribution. We have the politics of recognition. That people go to politics wanting their leaders to humiliate the other side and affirm our side. And people go to politics looking for places to admire themselves. If you leave people morally naked and alone with no moral system, they will flee to politics. Because politics offers the illusion of morality. It gives you the illusion of a moral landscape. There's us good guys over here, those bad guys over there. It gives you the illusion of moral action. You don't have to sit with the widow or help feed the hungry. You just have to feel indignant about the other side. And it gives you the illusion of community, because they're all of us reds or blues. But it's not really community. You're not really meeting together and taking care of each other. You're just hating the same people together. And so it's a very failed form of social therapy. So you think you're getting out of a world of amoral loneliness, but you're entering a world of political culture war. Yeah, and to me, I think that that's the culmination of that hyper-individualistic ideology,
1: which is a function of neoliberalism, colliding with these digital tools that are all designed to help us curate our own little personal realities. I mean, it really is a a kind of uh, horror show.
2: Yeah, and and I would 100% agree with that, though. I'd say it was partly political liberalism, but a lot more lifestyle individualism, too, that I get to do what I want. And then you add social media to the mix, and you really got something bad. Yeah, I think it's both.
1: This is, again, one of the things I'm always harping on is is the failure of the countercultural movement and how the narcissism and the self-actualization movement that was sort of the legacy of that has also been an absolute disaster and combined in really catastrophic ways with all these other things we're talking about.
2: Yeah, One of the questions that you're making me want to ask is, so I have this morally hectoring thing where we should build all these cultural institutions. We should give people training on how to treat each other, basically. That's my... I quote the philosopher Iris Murdoch, I'm a big fan of, that we, we look at each other and at other people in selfish ways. We make other people objects for our own selfishness. And to grow, you have to grow, she says, by grow by looking. We have to learn to cast a just and loving attention on each other. So that's my recipe. The other question which you're making me wonder about is, is there a material solution here? So if we changed our politics, how much would it change our culture? I've come
1: to believe more and more that our technologies are are now the primary drivers of our culture in that way. And I don't see those changing anytime soon. And (sighs) I don't know where that leaves us.
2: So I I remain, um, one of my colleagues at the Times is Tom Friedman, who is often a, a technological determinist. You show me the technology, I'll show you the society.
1: I'm not all the way there, but I'm close.
2: Yeah. I'm a cultural determinist. You show me the ideas and values of the society. I'll show you how people use technology. I'll show you how people use the market. So I'm a cultural determinist. And that upswing chart I mentioned earlier, Robert Putnam's research showing all these statistics going up and down at the same time, that to me is proof that culture really matters because it was the culture that shifted, that changed everything else, the values that shifted, uh, not so much uh, the technology. Yeah, maybe that's our deepest divide then. I, (laughs) I think it's
1: almost exactly the opposite. Again, the iPhone was introduced, what, in 2007? Would you say that that shaped our culture in pretty profound and dramatic ways? Would you say that it shaped us, our minds and psyches, more than anything else? Or would you say that the culture that preceded it somehow (laughs) survived contact
2: with that? So here's a perfect example. So the iPhone is everywhere, but the, the depression and suicide rates are not in Denmark. They're not in Kenya. And they haven't seen the psychic breakdown. And Some of the Western European countries have seen it, but not nearly to the extent we have. This is why I still remain a materialist to the extent I do think having a robust
1: communal life is still as good a backstop as you're going to find to some of these social pathologies. And I, I just want to see a world where that those things are priorities. You know, we spend a bunch of time on the social conditions, but I do at least want to pivot just for a minute towards the end here and get a little personal, if you don't mind. And I want to do that in part because you do this in your, your really terrific new book, which I had a chance to read, How to Know a Person, which... I don't think it's out yet.
2: It comes out October 24th.
1: It's really interesting. And a big implication in in kind of what you're saying there and and what you say in this piece is that moral education is both good for us for its own sake, but also good because it changes us, because it makes us better human beings in our actual lives. You've made a career out of your own moral education. So how has it changed
2: you? Yeah, I mean, I tell the story in that book, which is going to sound name-droppy, but I like name-dropping, so I'm going to go ahead and do it. So I was interviewed twice in my life by Oprah Winfrey. And the first time and the second time were four years apart. And after the second interview, after we were done taping it, she says to me, "Uh, David, I've never seen any adult change that much. You were so emotionally blocked before. And like that was a proud moment for me because I genuinely was emotionally blocked before. And I'm genuinely... Uh, I'm more open emotionally when somebody comes to me with a, the people never used to come to me with their problems and their vulnerabilities. And when they did, I was like nervous because I didn't know what to say. Now I'm still pretty inept, but at least I'm honored they asked. I can sit there, I can enter into their lives (laughs) and try to be a helpful presence. And so I, if you look at me from even my public affects from 20 years ago to today—it's really very different. And I'm a big believer that it's not like people grow up at age 20 and then stop changing. People can change radically through the, any at any point in the course of their lives. And I've become much more vulnerable before audiences, telling them what shit I'm going through, uh, and telling them about the hard times in my life. And my saying is that our writers are beggars who tell other beggars where we found bread. And so my last few books are really like, I read this, I found this helpful. Here, maybe I'll share it with you.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you know, I used to, when I was still teaching philosophy in college, this kind of thing would come up all the time. Students would point out correctly that moral philosophers don't appear to be any more moral than anyone else on average, which raises the obvious question, you know, what good is all that education and knowledge if it doesn't transform you? you know, knowing what to do and doing what you know you ought to do are very different things. And I guess for me the, the deeper point, which sort of I guess is what I've been kind of hammering here, that you know I certainly agree that education is essential to being a good and wise person, but it's not sufficient. We need support, we need connection, we need community. We need a dignified life we need a country and a social and political system that aims at those things and we don't have that right now
2: yeah and just now i'm going to sound like i'm defending your point of view but it's true that moral philosophers are not more moral than the average person but it's also true that economists are less moral than the average person so i think the research shows that they're they're, they take self-interest more they've given themselves permission to be self-interested um well it's it's interesting how this conversation has wafted and waned because it breaks down a lot of the normal barriers between social conservatism and economic conservatism. And the uh, the normally the people who focusing on well, there's a left and right version of communitarianism. And I think I agree with both those versions. And so I um sounds like you do too, that there is a like a Michael Sandel version of communitarianism, that a lot of these institutions are undermining the community we actually need.
1: Yeah, I, I think I do find a lot of wisdom in both of those traditions. What are the sorts of morally formative institutions that you want to see that work in this 21st century? You know, apart from a more humanistic curriculum, what other organizations or institutions are we talking about? And, and where does the support and the social capital needed to sustain them come from in such a fragmented and polarized country?
2: Well, one, you know, I think we can teach the social skills I've been talking about, you can teach them in elementary school. Like how do you sit with someone who's got depression? How do you offer forgiveness? How do you break up with someone without destroying their heart? Those are skills and we can teach those skills. Second, you know, you were a philosophy professor, I believe in your professions. (laughs) I think, you know, I was at Valparaiso University in Indiana not long ago, and they have a great books course, which a lot of the freshmen take. But they take the course, discuss Aristotle, Plato, big ideas. Then they have to put on a musical production about one of the ideas they're studying. And so they're not only studying it, they're working as a community to try to put on the show. (laughs) And to me, that's not only ideas, it's the kind of community where you learn to sacrifice, to take a step back, to serve others. So I do think There are courses around the country and basically how to lead a better life. And these courses were looked at unprofessionally because they don't follow an academic discipline. But there's one at Harvard. There's one at Notre Dame. I used to teach one on how to make commitments in life and how to live up to your commitments. And I think these kind of courses should be required in colleges. They should be the center of the education, how to lead a better life, uh, not just how to get a job at McKinsey. And then I think institutions should see themselves as morally formative institutions. So I mentioned Jim Lehrer. He saw his job as leader of our program to make us a better version of ourselves. And so I think that that needs to be done. And then, of course, I'm for anything that will encourage local communities to be formed. And my theory of cultural change is that a culture changes when a small group of people find a better way to live and the rest of us copy. And so, in the 1950s and 60s, the beatniks and the hippies found a way to live, and a lot of people found that super attractive, and they copied it. About 2,000 years before, the early church, Christians found what many people found a better way to live, and a lot of people copied that. And so, I think that's part of cultural regeneration. Yeah, and
1: look, you know, I I think the last thing I'll say in the spirit of appreciation and solidarity, really, is just to kind of repeat myself, that we don't... We don't really disagree about the importance of moral education, and I enjoyed your piece. And I think, like a lot of your work, it's full of useful wisdom, and it has a a kind of ethical depth that I really appreciate. I just felt like it was important in this conversation to emphasize, maybe even overemphasize, the materialist account of how we got here, because I think it can be very easy to reduce the story of cruelty and alienation in this country to something like moral education and and maybe focusing on that at the expense of these other things could get in the way of recognizing all the things we have to do if we want a society where people can really flourish. And moral education is a part of that,
2: for sure. Yeah, and I probably spend too much time pushing against materialist explanations because I'm surrounded by people who do them. So I probably push against just part of my job. One thing I think you probably will not disagree with, but I always feel like I should emphasize it, because some people come up to me and after that piece, they said, well, of course, you know, rich people have the luxury of caring about moral formation. People who are struggling are just trying to get by. They're just trying to get through the day. And that's sort of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And I just think that's wrong. I think the churches, mosques, and synagogues of the world are filled with pretty poor people around the world who take their spiritual and moral life tremendously seriously. And it's not like they had to fill their material needs first. For most people, their spiritual and moral needs are primary. And so I just think spiritual life is not something that you get more of as you get more comfortable and you go up the income scale. Yeah, and look,
1: I, I don't think human beings live by bread alone, but bread's really important. <laughs> <laughs> okay. you know what I mean? yeah. It's really important. I'm on an Atkins diet, so I don't think bread <laughs> is important at all. <laughs> On that note, look, David, uh, I think this is the first time we've spoken. I really enjoyed it, and I appreciate
2: you coming
1: on the show. So
2: thank you. Sure, it was a real pleasure. Two semi-clashing points of view made me think. So thank you. Go
1: read his piece if you haven't already, and check out David's upcoming book, How to Know a Person. It's a great read. Patrick Boyd engineered this episode, Alex Overington wrote our theme music, Serena Solin is our fact checker, and A.M. Hall is the boss. As always, let us know what you think of this episode. Drop us a line at at Vox.com. And please share it with your friends on all the socials. The gray area is a part of Vox, which doesn't have a paywall. Help us keep Vox free by going to vox.com slash give.